So here now the very word of God as it is given to us in the prophecy of Jeremiah, reading from the 29th chapter, verses 10 and 11. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. For I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil to give you a future, and a hope. And may the Lord impress upon our minds this morning the true meaning of these words and what the Lord is actually saying to us. May Let's pray and ask him for that illumination. Father, so often I know that we, and especially certain groups of people, like to take your word out of context and to make it say things that it's not really saying. And this, of course, is one of those verses. So I just pray that you would give wisdom to my words this morning, that um, the the argument from Scripture that is going to be made would be clear and definitive, and that we would recognize the message that is being stated here, that you do want us to know and how it would apply to us. And we will give you the glory. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Amen. Well, as I have mentioned, and as I think you already know, verse 11 here in the 29th chapter of Jeremiah is one of the most often quoted verses in the Bible. You'll see it everywhere. You'll see it on t-shirts. You'll see it on people's computer screens. You'll see it on TV. You'll even see it on billboards. you see it in uh, many different um, uh, places. And it's not hard for us to imagine how those who are focusing on a gospel that is known as the health and wealth gospel, I'm just going to call them the prosperity people today. It's not hard for us to see how they might take this verse out of context and use it to say something that it really isn't. The less scrupulous among them will take it completely out of context. And they will use the verse to tell you that God has a plan for you and it's a plan for good and all you need to do is name it and claim it and good things are going to happen to you. Well, at least those who have read the chapter (laughs) that understand the context that this is given in will realize that this is something that is being said to people under duress uh, that are suffering. And so therefore, they'll change it a little bit and say, well, God's going to give you what you want. Just, you know, just claim those promises. Just hold on to it. Be faithful. Keep praying. And sooner or later, God is going to give you what you ask. Now, these people have have huge churches. They have gigantic followings. They're all over the internet. You go to a bookstore and they've got all the bestsellers list uh, our books that they have written. So who on earth am I to question what they are teaching? Well, the only authority I have, and you know this, the only authority I have is on the word of God. And so therefore we are going to turn to the word of God and we are going to try to understand what God is actually saying here. Now, when we interpret scripture, there is a process that we use. It's the big word is hermeneutics. But basically what we're going to try to do is interpret what is being said. And you always, rule number one is you let scripture interpret scripture. 
So the way that we are supposed to go about interpreting scripture is first of all you look at the verse and then you look at the verses around that verse and you see how it compares in that context. Then you broaden it and you go to the chapter and you look at the chapter and how does this verse connect with the rest of the chapter? Then you broaden it even further to the entire book and you say, okay, in Jeremiah's prophecy, how does this fit into the general themes that Jeremiah is developing? And then you'll back up even more and you'll say, okay, within the genre of this book, how does it fit? In other words, if you're looking at a gospel, how does this fit with the other gospels? If it's an epistle, how does it relate to the other epistles? If it's prophetic, then how does it fit into the general theme of the prophecies of this time? Then you back up and you look at it in the context of the entire Bible. And you say, okay, what is the Bible trying to tell us? And what is it saying from start to finish? And how does this fit in? Are there conflicts in the way that I'm interpreting this verse? And then finally, you will put it into its historical and cultural perspective. The theologians call this the Sitzen Lieben, and it just means that it is the life setting of the verse. In other words, what was Jeremiah's situation when he wrote it and to the people he wrote it to? And only then, after you've done all of that, can you really effectively decide how to apply it to yourself and and how to use that verse. And so that's exactly what I want to do this morning. Starting out, I'm going to sort of do it in reverse because the historical setting here is huge. The historical setting, what's going on at the time that Jeremiah writes this, is of the utmost importance. And those of you who are about to turn yourselves off because you hate history, I want to remind you something before you do that. God thought that this history was so important that he included it in his inerrant, infallible word. And so, therefore, you have an obligation to know what the Bible says about the history of the Bible. Now, if you were here last week, you know that we talked a lot about history. I took you on a journey through all of redemptive history, starting in the beginning and ending in the consummation in Jesus Christ, the fullness of time. Well, I told you something last week that is going to be of of, of very great importance this morning. And that was that there was a cycle that tends to occur throughout Scripture. It is a cycle that starts with God's blessing and then man's rebellion of that blessing and then a spiral into evil that leads to harsh judgment. But there is always the restoration of a remnant. God always restores a remnant and then... A beautiful promise of that which is to come. And we saw that at the very beginning of the book. God blesses Adam and Eve in the garden. They rebel against God by taking the forbidden fruit. Then the history of humanity is a spiral of evil from Cain all the way down to the time of the flood. And God brings harsh judgment with the flood, but he preserves a remnant with Noah and his family and then gives a beautiful uh, rainbow in the sky to be the promise of how he's eventually going to handle um, the problem of sin. That's the cycle that we see throughout history. Now, we are in the midst of that cycle right now in Jeremiah. 
Because if we go back to the beginning of the kingdom of Israel, David and Solomon was a time of great blessing. God blessed them immensely. But then they began to rebel against God towards the end of Solomon's reign and certainly after Solomon died and his sons rebelled and split the kingdom. Then there was this spiral of evil. The spiral of evil lasted several centuries. And we read things in the scripture like this. He did what was evil in the sight of the Lord, according to the despicable practices of the nations whom the Lord drove out before the people of Israel. We see good kings like Hezekiah, and then it turns right around, and we see evil kings like his son Manasseh. And and so um, the, the cycle continues until the time that they cross the line of providence. You never run past the line of God's patience. He's infinitely patient, but you can cross the line of his providence. And that's exactly what the children of Israel have done. So where we are right now, when Jeremiah writes this, we are in the midst of the judgment aspect of that cycle. Now, as you know, after Solomon, they divided the kingdom of Israel into two kingdoms. The northern kingdom, which they called Israel. The southern kingdom, which they called Judah. And God is bringing harsh judgment on both of those kingdoms. Started out with the northern kingdom, 722 B.C. The Assyrian king Sargon comes and destroys The northern kingdom, it lays siege to it. We read this in 2 Kings. Then the king of Assyria invaded all the land and came to Samaria. And for three years, he besieged it and finally destroyed it. Now, the Assyrians had a practice that they would do when they conquered a country. They would depopulate and repopulate. They would depopulate the land. They would take all the people who lived there and scatter them across all the other lands that they had. And then they would take others from all those lands and bring them to repopulate the area that they had just depopulated. And that is how we ended up with Samaritans in Samaria. Because the Jews that were left, which were the poor of the poor, intermarried with pagans from all over the place and you had this sort of a half-blood race and a half-religion race. But that's the northern kingdom. Our focus right now is on the southern kingdom because that's the kingdom that Jeremiah is writing in. And the Assyrian country, nation, has already fallen. The new superpower in the world is Babylon. And its young king, Nebuchadnezzar, seems to have an insatiable appetite for land, for power, and for treasure. And so he comes and he conquers the nation of Judah, or the kingdom of Judah. But he didn't depopulate, repopulate. He just deported and took them back to Babylon. And that deportation, this is starting to get into the sort of important part of it, Uh, Not that the rest wasn't important, but the most relevant part of what we're going to talk about. The deportation took three various phases at that time. We've, We've advanced now to about 605 B.C. And in the first deportation, it was sort of mild. He just took the cream of the crop, the best of the best, and some of the treasure from the temple. That was the deportation that Daniel and his friends, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, were taken from Israel over to um, Babylon. And you can read in the book of Daniel their escapades. But then about eight years later in 597 BC, there was a 
severe deportation. Uh, the, the situation just continued to get worse and worse. And, and so Nebuchadnezzar deported tens of thousands of people in that time. And he took the, the leaders. He took the priests, he took the military leaders, he took the fighting people, he took the backbone of the country so that they would not rise up and, and, and reject him. And he appointed his own sort of puppet king, Zedekiah, and he took the rest back to um, Babylon. Well, Zedekiah eventually decided he would revolt against or rebel against um, uh, Nebuchadnezzar, formed an alliance with the king of, uh, of, of Egypt. And, of course, Nebuchadnezzar just wiped him out. And that is when Nebuchadnezzar came in 587 B.C. and destroyed the, 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 the city of Jerusalem and did destroy the temple. This is what we read, 2 Kings 25.9. He burned the house of the Lord and the king's house and all the houses of Jerusalem, every great house. He burned down. So in 587, 586 BC, Jerusalem is destroyed. He literally took the the beautiful temple that Solomon had made and he knocked all the stones down and actually filled the Kidron Valley with those stones. Um, you, You can read about that in the book of Nehemiah when he made his midnight journey around the walls of the city and he he gave a description of how devastated it was and how it was nothing more than an abode for jackals. Well, this is the world in which Jeremiah the prophet is prophesying. He lived through the last three kings of Jerusalem, of Judah, Josiah, Jehoiakim, and Zedekiah, the very last one. He is living in Jerusalem until the end of his life. They forced him more or less to go to Egypt and we lose sight of him. But he is prophesying in Jerusalem during this very tumultuous time. Now, before the deportation, before Babylon came and destroyed them, Jeremiah is preaching that there is judgment to come if you guys do not turn back to God, if you don't mend your ways, then there's going to be a horrible famine and there's going to be a horrible judgment by God. While he is telling people the truth, there are false prophets everywhere that are telling a lie. This is when they say, peace, peace, when there was no peace. They're saying there is not going to be a famine. There's not going to be a sword. All of this is going to pass. This guy is just trying to create trouble. And so he was persecuted during the time of his prophecy. He was thrown in jail. He was accused of treason. He was thrown in a stinking cistern. He could have lost his life. But Zedekiah still feared him, and so he would still listen to him. And so he pulled him out of the, of the jail or out of the cistern and brought him into his house and says, Does the word of the Lord, does the Lord have anything to say to me? And, you know, he probably shouldn't have asked because Jeremiah didn't ever, ever cut corners or, or you know, soften his words. He says, Yes, the Lord has told me something. And basically that uh, you shall be delivered into the hand of the king of Babylon. Uh, and bad things are going to happen to Zedekiah, and that's exactly what eventually happens. Now, let me try to make something clear. 
because it's going to help counteract what these prosperity guys are going to say. This was a cataclysm. This was a devastating event. This is on par with the flood, with the Egyptian captivity, with the 40 years in the desert. It is on par with the destruction of Israel in in the 70 AD. This was a time when a brutish, a bestial people overtook the people. They murdered them. They chopped them in pieces. But before that happened, there was a siege on the city. And during that siege, please forgive me, this is right out of Jeremiah. It's harsh words. It's hard to listen to. But this is the situation that these people had gone through that he's prophesying to. God speaking now, not the devil. God is saying these words. I will make this city a horror a thing to be hissed at. Everyone who passes by it will be horrified and will hiss because of all of its wounds. I will make them eat the flesh of their sons and their daughters, and everyone shall eat the flesh of his neighbor in the siege and in the distress with which their enemies and those who seek their lives afflict them. That's not symbolic language, folks. That happened. It was a horrific event. And so try to put yourself into the shoes of the exiles. Because chapter 29 of Jeremiah's book is a letter. It's a letter that he wrote somewhere between the second deportation in 597 and the total destruction of Jerusalem in 587. And he's prophesying in Jerusalem and he's got a message And he's surrounded by false prophets who are saying the opposite. And over there with the tens of thousands of people who have already been taken to Babylon, they have their own set of false prophets telling them the same thing. As far as we know, Jeremiah is the one that's sticking out like a sore thumb. So let's turn to that chapter 29. Let me give you some context within the chapter of exactly what is going on with Jeremiah, why he is so unpopular with the people, and why he says what he says in verses 10 and 11. Look at the first verse there in chapter 29, if you have your Bibles open. These are the words of the letter that Jeremiah the prophet sent from Jerusalem to the surviving elders of the exiles, to the priests, to the prophets, and all the people whom Nebuchadnezzar had taken into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon. Once again, the people who had been taken into exile were the leaders. These were the elders and the priests and the backbone of the strength of Israel. And the reason I'm kind of emphasizing that is that in the Israeli society, you kind of came to age when you hit 40, all right? Um, the, 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 you know, remember how Paul talks to Timothy about don't let people bother you with your youth? Well, he wasn't a teenager. You know, he just wasn't of the age that people respected. So they're a little bit older. They're, they're not in their 20s and probably not even in their 30s, the leaders that, that he's talking to. Well, anyway, the problem that was going on in Babylon in those days, and that's where our focus is now, he writes a letter to the people, and the problem is, is that the false prophets were telling them, don't fret, don't um, integrate, 
Don't form your houses. Don't live here. Resist and rebel. Because God is going to bring a mighty work. He is going to destroy Nebuchadnezzar. And he's going to lead you back. You're going to go right back and take control. Because God is the one who's going to take this alert, this, this, this situation and completely turn it around. That's what the false prophets were telling them. And so when we see the 8th and the ninth verses. Directly before verses 10 and 11. This is what. God says through Jeremiah, for thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, do not let your prophets and your diviners or your diviners who are among you deceive you and do not listen to the dreams that they dream. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. Now that's the immediate context. God saying these false prophets who are telling you that you're going to go back right away to, to Israel, that this is a fluke, that God did not mean this, that God doesn't let his people get treated this way. Remember that you are the people of God and Israel is going to be supreme. And so therefore, don't do anything but resist and rebel. That's the false prophecy. Now let's take a look at what, what Jeremiah is telling me. I told you earlier that he was accused of being a traitor. Well, you're going to see why here. Back up a little bit to the fourth verse. This is the word of God to the exiles in Babylon that Jeremiah is telling them. Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Take wives and have sons and daughters. Take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage. That you may bear sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease. Underline that if you underline your Bible. Multiply there and do not decrease. Look what he says in the seventh verse. But seek the welfare of the city Where I have sent you into exile. Notice God speaking. I have sent you into exile. Seek the welfare of that city and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For in its welfare, you will find your welfare. Say what? (laughs) These are the people that just, I mean, everyone had a story. Uh, you, you know, everyone has lost someone, lost children, lost parents, lost um, brothers and sisters, lost spouses. Everyone has suffered tremendously at the hands of these horribly brutish people. The Chaldeans were known for being um, harsh in this kind of a situation. And now I've lost everything. I've lost my home. I've lost my business. All of that I've worked my entire life for. And I have been carted out over here and dumped in this desert land. And you're telling me that I should pray for them? That I should pray for their welfare? That's treason. And that's the reason that Jeremiah was being accused of treason. He was being accused of diminishing God, of not believing in God and his love for Israel, all of those things. So what we're going to do is try to unravel that. Why on earth would... Now we know that that Jeremiah is the true prophet. We know that. We know these other guys that are saying this is only going to happen and you're going to go home. These are the false prophets. So why is God saying this? What is the message that he is portraying to these people who are 
in exile. So with that sort of setting up our study, let's take a look at the 10th verse. For thus says the Lord, when 70 years are completed for Babylon, I will visit you and I will fulfill to you my promise and bring you back to this place. Let's take this apart bit by bit. Starts with the word for. Now, the word for in the Hebrew is a word that can either be adversative or causal. And what that means is it can either be a but or a because. It can either say, now, that's not the way it is. This is the way it is. Or it can say, this is what I said, and I said it for this reason. Well, in this particular case, that for is both of those things. And the for always points back to something. Do you remember what it points back to? It points immediately back to that statement just before it. it, The false prophets are telling you something that is not what I said. I didn't send them. They don't know my mind. They aren't telling you what I've said. Now, but I'm going to tell you what I did say. I'm going to tell you what is true. Because I'm going to now talk through my prophet Jeremiah. And I'm going to lay it straight for you. This is a message for God's people. Notice the word that Jeremiah uses for God here, the Lord. Now, most of you know that in the Old Testament, every time you run across that word, that's written there, Lord, in all caps, lowercase caps, but they're all caps anyway. That means that the underlying Hebrew word there is Yahweh. The most sacred word in the Hebrew language, the word that they used for God to talk about the covenant God, the faithful God, the God of Israel. Now, when when Jeremiah talks about God, almost always he's talking about Yahweh, the Lord. Three times in this chapter, he actually uses another word for God, Elohim. But we've already read that several times. The only time he uses it when he says, thus says the Lord God of Israel. Every time he talks about God, he speaks of Yahweh. 25 times in this chapter alone, he refers to Yahweh. 600 and let me get this, 659 times that he uses it in the book of Jeremiah. So the point I'm making is this. Brothers and sisters, this is a letter written to God's people. This is not a letter written to pagans. It is not a letter written to the world in general. This is a letter that is written for those that the Lord God calls his own. And that's the reason that we need to make sure that we understand who he's talking to and what's going on with them when he says these things. Now notice what he says. For thus says the Lord... When 70 years are completed for Babylon. Now you see, here's precisely where the prosperity people fall down. This is where they fail to look at the context. Because what they'll say, even those who actually read the chapter and actually say, well, um, yeah, these people are suffering in, in Babylon, but hey, God, just, just, just hang in there and pray and God is going to fix it all. He's going to bring it all around for you. Well, Notice when he wrote this letter in 597 B.C. And notice what he says here, how he says it. When 70 years are what? When they're completed. When they're done. In other words, all these blessings that we're getting ready to talk about are going to occur 70 years from now. What does this say to the people reading the letter? 
you'll never leave Babylon. 70 years from now, you're 40 years old right now. You'll be 110 years old. You're going to die in Babylon. If you're 15 years old now, you're going to be 85 when we return back to Israel. And over searing deserts and sharp mountains and wide rivers. A very difficult and arduous trip. Most of you are not going to make it. Only the very young amongst them are actually going to reap the blessings that God is now giving to the people that he sent the letter to. And every single pronoun and every single verb is in the second person plural. He is talking to the people of God, folks. He's not talking to individuals because these individuals are not going to make it home. He is talking to the remnant. This is a message to the remnant, the ones who indeed would return. Now, notice what he says. Three promises after this he gives. I will visit you. I will fulfill to you my promise. And I will bring you back to this place. Remember, this is 70 years down the line that this is going to happen. First thing he says, I will visit you. The word visit does not just mean to pop in, visit a friend and check on how you're doing. No, to visit means to come with a purpose, to come to fix something, to come to attend to something that you've already said. So, in other words, it was the exact same word used when God promised Abraham that his 90-year-old wife is going to have a baby and, and, and is not going to be some other way. And when that actually happened, we read in Genesis 21, the Lord visited Sarah, as he had said. And the Lord did to Sarah as he had promised, which was to open her womb and give her a child. And so, therefore, it means that God has come with a purpose or God will come with a purpose. And the purpose that he has come with is to fulfill his promise. The word fulfill is very interesting words. It is a word that means to wake up, to rouse, to raise up. And, and it almost is what is being said is that these promises that I'm about to make are going to go to sleep for 70 years. They're going to be dormant. But in 70 years, I'm going to raise them up. I'm going to wake those promises up. And that's when I'm going to attend to them when I visit you. And the promise is given in the last phrase to bring you back to this place. Recognize that. The promise is not for prosperity while they are in Babylon. The promise is not that things are all going to be okay. The promise is that the remnant will return to this place. This place obviously would be the temple. It would be the place where God was because God is the one speaking. So he would say, the remnant will return in 70 years. I'll wake up this promise and I will implement it and I will lead the remnant back into this place. It is, again, a promise to those who will return and not to those who will stay. Now, I want you to understand the difference that's going on. The false prophets are telling the people, you're God's people. You're Abraham's descendant. God made promises to Abraham. So just name it and claim it. Just, just say the word. 
And if you believe in it strong enough, God is going to take you back. And he is going to accomplish what you, you, you want in your lifetime. You're all going back. Okay, Jeremiah comes back and says, you guys aren't going anywhere. Okay, you, you're, you're going to stay here. So here's what you need to do. You need to build houses. You need to have children. You need to plant gardens. In other words, increase, don't decrease. Live, survive. Because you have a hugely significant task. You have a huge job. Your job is to prepare the remnant who will return. We're going to have to have a group of people who go back and rebuild Jerusalem. Rebuild the temple. Stand against all the enemies that they have. These are not going to be lightweight people. They're not going to be fluffs. They're going to have to be strong and battle ready. And so you spend the rest of these 70 years raising up the remnant. Teach your children well. That's the message that he sent. Not, not the message that the false uh, prophets are telling today either. Okay, everything is great. Just name it, claim it. God is here to give you prosperity and wealth. It's the same story over and over again. The big difference is they're called who they are in Scripture, which is false prophets and false teachers. Here they have huge followings. But anyway, the command that God gives in that first verse is to survive because you are going to prepare the remnant to go back and fulfill the promises that I gave to Abraham. So with that, as the background and the context, verse 11 takes on a little bit of a different um, Um, Focus, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord. Plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. Once again, every verb, every pronoun is in the second person plural except the ones that refer to God. This is God speaking not to an individual. He's speaking to the church. He's speaking to my people. He's speaking to the children of Israel, the children of God. And that is what he is telling. This is what's going to happen. Once again, another four is there. Okay, this same thing. It takes us back. And, 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 and it not only takes us back to the verse just before that we just talked about, it takes us all the way back to the eighth and ninth verse again. Because that's the important context, verse, verse 9. For it is a lie that they are prophesying to you in my name. I did not send them, declares the Lord. And now he turns that around. It says, for I know the thoughts that I have for you. I know. They don't know. I know. I know my plans. They're just guessing. They know their own thoughts. They don't know my thoughts. The word for know that is used here is the word that is used when we talk about God knowing. It's a word of omniscience. God knows everything. He doesn't need to tell us, I know my plans. What he is telling us is, I know my plans and they don't. Okay, don't listen to them. Don't listen to those who are leading you astray, who are creating a God that doesn't exist and putting their own thoughts and words in his mouth. Don't do that because I have my own prophets. This is the, the, the very words that David would use even before a word is on my tongue. Behold, O Lord, you know it altogether. Sometimes God chooses to share what he knows with us. And when he does it in the Old Testament, he does it through prophets. 
Isaiah 42, Behold, the former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Therefore, they spring forth, I tell you, of them. So when God says, I know the plans that I have for you, actually the way that should read is, I know the thoughts I have thought for you. It's the same word. I know the plans I've planned for you. So basically what God is saying is, I know my eternal decree. I I, I know my providential will. I know what's going to happen. These guys don't, but I do. And so therefore, I have a plan. Now remember, the plan starts 70 years down the line. Okay, I have a plan for my people. I will bring them in this because my plans are different. And so there's, there's an ongoing struggle. And, 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 and people just don't wake up to this. God doesn't think like we think. And he basically is telling us here, don't think that you can think that I, you know what I think. In other words, don't put your thoughts in my mind. Because my ways are higher than your ways. And my thoughts are higher than your thoughts. As high as the heavens are above the earth, so are my ways above your ways and my thoughts above your thoughts. So don't go trying to put your thoughts, trying to put your opinions on who I am and what I am doing in my mouth. That's what false prophecy and false teaching is. And if there was ever a time in the history of the world that that was rampant, it is right now. People saying everything you can possibly say about God. So this is a very, actually a very sobering encouragement, if if you want to look at it that way. Sobering in the fact that he is telling the people of Israel in exile, 70 years are going to come before any of this happens. Most of you are going to die in Babylon. Uh, and, and, And a whole bunch of you are going to choose to stay there. But it's also encouraging. It's encouraging because I have a plan for my people. This is not the end. This is not your ultimate destination. Now, it's your ultimate destination. It is where you're going to live and die. But I'm going to bring your children back and I'm going to rebuild Israel. And there's going to be uh, a, a new kingdom. These are the subjects of the kingdom. Here's the dominion of your kingdom. And you're just going to have to wait a while for the king because I'm sending my son to be king of this kingdom. In other words, I've got great plans, and I know what my plans are. And at this particular point, no one else does. That's what we see in the fullness of time when Jesus comes. That's the glory of this. Well, in the process, in the midst of this, prepare a remnant. Do do you see the correlation, or is is it just me? Here, Here God is telling the people. All right, you're all living in South Florida, or most of you. We live in one of the most wicked places on earth, folks. We are surrounded by one of the most wicked, godless cultures that you're going to find. Same thing with these exiles. And what God is telling the exiles is this. You are going to live in the midst of a pagan culture that is going to try to suck the spiritual life out of your children. They're going to try to assimilate you, just like they tried to do with Daniel, Sadrach, Meshach, and Abednego. They tried to assimilate them into the Babylonian culture. That's what they were there for. And so they are going to make a concentrated effort to literally suck the spiritual life out of your people. But don't let them do it. Build houses. 
have children, hold on to them, and all the while prepare them for what comes. You don't know what is in the future. You don't know what kind of challenges the church is going to face, but I can guarantee you, your children were born for such a time as this. You were born for such a time as this. And therefore, we need to prepare the remnant if that's where we end up. Well, anyway... From there, he goes on and he uh, tells exactly what those plans are. He says, for I know the plans I have for you, declares the Lord, plans for welfare and not for evil, to give you a future and a hope. That first word, welfare, unfortunately, the NIV translates that as prosper. And the prosperity people just jump all over that. I have plans to bring you prosperity. Well, the word, actually, welfare is a good translation. It's the same word that is used earlier when he said that I want you to pray for the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile because their welfare is your welfare. But the underlying word is one that is very familiar to us. It's a form of the word shalom. And and so basically what God is saying is that I have plans of shalom for your children for the the remnant. Now, what is shalom? What does that mean? It talks of peace, and it talks of a particular kind of peace, not the absence of conflict, not that everything in your life is going to go rosy, but reconciliation with God. The Hebrew dictionary actually uses the word salvation here. In other words, I've got plans for the remnant. I'm going to bring them back into salvation and redemption with me. I'm going to bring them back into the city where I, where I live. And I am going to, to have them be the community that brings forth the Messiah. So in other words, I have plans of peace. Not plans of evil. When he talks about evil there, he's talking about Evil events, like the calamity that has just occurred to them. That's not your end. That's judgment, folks. Hundreds of years of apostasy. Hundreds of years of burning your babies in the valley of Hinnom to the god Molech. And worshiping the Baals on the high places. Turning from God, worshiping idols. This did not come about overnight. God is infinitely patient. But now there's a time of judgment on these people. But I am merciful, God says, and I will always restore a remnant. And that's what I am now preparing you for. I will bring them back for peace and not for evil. And then finally, to give you a future and a hope. The word future there does not mean the progression of time. It means the end. So in other words, it's not the next 70 years, but the end. This is not your end, folks. This is not the end of my people. It it might be the end of you, but it's not the end of my people. This is a hugely encouraging word to the people of God who live in a situation where they're constantly suffering. And realize that so many Christians around the world right now live in these impossible situations of persecution and suffering. And God is telling them that this is not the Sabbath rest for God's people. There's another Sabbath rest. That this is not the end that I have an end of expectation, an end that is hopeful. In fact, once again, turning to the Hebrew dictionary, this is a hope of a group of people, a number of people, a community of those who display hope are basically a hope for your descendants. Now, brothers and sisters, God knew 
that there would be a remnant. He knew. Now, let me just explain to you how this actually turned out. Most everyone that is reading this letter will perish and die in Babylon as God has said. But the, this, this statement has nothing to do with their well-being while they are in Babylon. Because actually God blessed them. While they're there, he actually blessed them. And the Persians came along and, and took out the, the Babylonians. They were much more lenient with the Jews. And so they actually were able to prosper while they were in Babylon. So much so that most of them didn't return at the end of the 70 years. At the end of the 70 years, most of the Jews decided to stay in Babylon and not go home to their homeland. You know who went home? Do you know who went home? The ones who had been prepared, the ones whose parents had raised them with the fire of fulfilling God's plan of of his providence. And, and, And the ones that went home with their hearts right, those were the ones who had been prepared. They grew up in Babylon. That's all they ever knew. They heard about this place that, that was far away, but they'd never seen it. There were no pictures of it. There was nothing they could do except hear the stories of their parents. And it's in shambles and it's in desperation. Who on earth wants to go back there when I've got a profitable business here? The only ones who are going to do it are going to be the Zerubbabel's and the Ezra's and the, the Nehemiah's. And those who have a fire to do the will of God. How do you get the fire? Well, obviously the Holy Spirit. But that is the remnant that has been prepared. It's ready to go back. So let me just kind of wrap this up. And, and, and I don't know if you caught this. But when we sang that last song this morning, I said just, you know, that's New Testament eschatology. Um, and, and I said it's going to be very close to it, what we're seeing here. Well, let me see if I can boil this whole thing down that Jeremiah is telling the exiles in Babylon into a single phrase. It would just go something like this. Live like God's children in the midst of a pagan culture. Be faithful and raise your children in the fear and admonition of the Lord until the Lord takes you home. That's New Testament eschatology, folks. That's what we're called to do. We don't know when Jesus is coming back, but we are told to be faithful, to raise our children, to strengthen the church, to evangelize, to disciple, to do everything that God is actually telling the exiles in Babylon to do because we have no idea what the need these children of ours are going to have when the future comes. So let's talk about that future. You know, I told my, my wife what I was going to talk about. She said, maybe I won't come this morning. Um, uh, because you're, you're going to have to look at this from God's perspective to, to find the blessing that's here, the expectation and the hope. I'm not a prophet, brothers and sisters, so I cannot tell you what's around the corner for us. But I can look at the world and the way things are going. And, and, and I can tell you basically three things. Um, one, the status quo that we have known in this country for the 200 years that we've been here is, is not going to continue. 
Um, I, I don't see things staying the way they are. One of two things is going to happen. Either God is going to bring revival, and I'm talking about our country and Western civilization, if you will. Either God is going to bring a revival, and it will be glorious, and people all over the world are going to turn back to God, and you're going to see a movement of the Spirit amongst people that is just amazing, and and churches are going to fill up again with people who really want to know God and know His words. That's what we pray for. Or else the signs that we see in this world are going to continue. Because when I look at the world as it is now, I see that death spiral. I see a spiral into evil. We were raised with a blessing. This country was given the most amazing blessing. It was established with godly principles and Christian principles. It was established by reformed Puritans. And, uh, the laws that were written all that time back uh, a while before they've rewritten history. We have been blessed beyond any group of people in the West. And, and the way that God has revealed himself to us, we have rebelled against that. We have given God a second seat and now we're in that evil spiral. I look around me and I see signs of that. I see signs of the insanity that occurs when God removes his hand of blessing. Go read Romans 1. There, sexual immorality becomes rampant. Homosexuality becomes rampant. And insanity begins to take the place of rational reasoning. When you live in a society where a man can be a mediocre athlete and win nothing and say, I want to be a woman and start winning records that they set the records and require everyone to call he a she. That's insanity. It's insanity when a group of horrible uh, um, terrorists attack peaceful people. Innocent people that aren't doing anything. And they cross the borders of their territory and they go in and they commit all kinds of unspeakable acts to these people. Kill them, mutilate them, rape them, destroy babies, children, women, men. Doesn't matter what they are. And then the world heralds them. And there's, 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 there's uh, 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 exhibitions or, or protests all around the world in their support. That's insanity, folks. I look around me and I see the world spiraling into evil. What comes after blessing? Rebellion. Evil. What's next? Judgment. If we are in that, the future might look very different for us and for our children than it does right now. It could be a time of great persecution for the church. We already see it around the world. There's all kinds of persecution of Christians in certain places. It could easily come here. So what do we do if that actually does occur? If we do find ourselves in a place of persecution, well, the first thing that we do is we trust in God's sovereignty and his plan. That we recognize that God's providence is always good. That he always works things out for good. It may not mean that my life is going to be easy. It may not mean that things are going to turn out the way that I want. I may end up in Babylon, and I may end up without all of the things that I say I've worked for. But I know something. I know that there is a Sabbath rest for God's people, and I know that it's not here. I know that my Lord has gone to prepare a place for me that where he is, there I might be also. 
I know that in this world I will have tribulation, but my Lord has taken over the world, has overcome the world. I know that evil seems like it triumphs, but I also know that Jesus has said, this is my church and the gates of hell will never prevail against it. I know those things. So I know that this world is not all there is. So what does that leave us with? What are we supposed to do as a church? What is our job? What is our calling that we are supposed to do? Looking forward to this new year, what do we give ourselves to? Prepare the remnant, folks. I don't care if we hit revival and the church is blossoming and it is glorious and wonderful or whether we are meeting in private because we are afraid to show our faces as Christians and the Lord has just told us to survive and to prepare the remnant. It doesn't matter which one it is. We have the same job to prepare the remnant. I could read you so many passages from the New Testament that tell you to prepare and to be ready and to give your life to the preparation of what might be just around the corner. But I'm just going to read the ones from Jesus. Because he is straightforward to it. You are the light of the world, he says. A city set on a hill cannot be hidden. Nor do people light a lamp and put it under a basket, but on a stand. And it gives light to all that's in the house in the same way. Let your light shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. I don't care whether we are living under persecution. I don't care if we have a completely different kind of government. I don't care if they close the churches. I don't care what happens in the future because that's my calling. And that's what I'm going to do. I'm going to let the light of Christ shine in the darkness. The greater the darkness, the greater the light. But this is not a new concept. Brothers and sisters, that, that, that one, the light shining in the darkness, that is what we as a church are called to do. And that means that everyone who walks through our door, everyone who comes here, we disciple, we mentor. When a new Christian is here, we come along beside them. We help them pray. We help them learn. We raise them in the Lord and we grow them and strengthen them for the world that is ahead. But oh, my dear brothers and sisters, the greatest calling that we have is for our children to raise our children to be ready for whatever faces them and this is not new God said this to Moses and Moses said it to the people of Israel hear O Israel the Lord our God the Lord is one you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart with all your soul and with all your might And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart. You shall teach them diligently to your children and shall talk of them when you sit in your house, when you walk by the way and when you lie down and when you rise. Brothers and sisters, I want you to realize something. You are already a conqueror if you are in Jesus Christ. You are already the victor. You have already won. There is nothing that can stand between you and an eternity with God. And you have got a little bit of time to help the generation that comes behind you. So therefore, we can just look to the new year and we can just hold two words in our minds. Prepare the remnant. Three words. Prepare the remnant. Amen? Let's pray. Our dear Lord, um, ah, 
We have been so blessed, and we are blessed right now to be in a country where we can meet like this, and we can record this and put it out on the airwaves. We know that around the world right now, there are a lot of people who can't do that. There are a lot of people that would lose their lives if they were to do or say what I just said in, in this morning's message. But dear Lord, you, you, you've called us that wherever we are, whatever situation, just like Paul said, to learn to be content in whatever situation that we are in. And I just pray, dear Lord, that, that we will take it to heart, that we are, we're not just to sit here. We're not just to be lethargic. We're not just supposed to, to, to settle in and say, okay, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be involved with preparing next generation's Christians and next generation's church. We need to, to prepare the remnant, and I pray that that would be very heavy on our hearts and in the forefront of our minds and that you would be pleased in the way that we do it. We give you the glory in Jesus' name. Amen.